the uh, Big City Diner. It's like a 1950s-style diner in Kaimuki, uh, Hawaii, mm-hmm. on the island of Oahu. So by day, it's like burgers, fries, and checkerboard uh, tablecloths. Aww. And then at night, after the last table was sort of sometimes still families there eating chicken nuggets, um, the like the the vanguard of uh, poetry, freestyle, hip-hop, jazz, funk, surf, punk would start coming in and setting up and blow the top off the place. It was a really great contrast when it started and and uh, a giant family is over there still eating their chips. Um, and while people came in and lightning bolts went through their head and they revealed the reality of the day in prose. Um, that's where I met boys. And what were you doing there, boys? I was exercising my cognitive sovereignty, which is a duty, not merely a right. Ooh, All right. It's going to take it one step further. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Always pushing the yeah, envelope. There was, there was a bustling artistic scene in the early aughts. Not only Big City Diner, but James Lipton had Word Stew, and yep. there were a few other prominent spoken word venues. I was the first it was also winner. also part of Special Prescription, a visual arts collective of 20-somethings, 30-somethings, a, co- a few people in their 40s at that time. And between Special Prescription and the Chinatown underground red brick loft scene, Yep. Ooh. Art centers like On King, which Brother Evno was a part of for many years. Hisham Studio, Studio Hisham One. Hisham Studio, and the the work of uh, Stone Stone Groove Family, with mm. two star tenders, Jesse and Gordo, and uh, Stone Groove DJs. Star tenders. Yep. Yeah, we all created Chinatown as a cultural destination, and uh, it was just overall throughout Honolulu a very vibrant artistic uh, scene in a lot of. Uh, genres. Yeah. So when are you uh, guys uh, going to uh, write a book about that? A lot of our people were getting <laughs> terrorism files before September 11th. It before was very it was exciting. Cool. Yeah. Terrorism files before it was cool. Yeah. It was uh, some, I, I know one um, graffiti artist who was run off the island uh, because he was associated with this scene at, at the buildup uh, for the protest for the Asian Development Bank coming and trying to, after the battle in Seattle, which was the WTO. Um, kerfuffle in Seattle in 1998, six out there. Yeah. Late um, 90s. Uh, the, oh. the, the powers that be, uh, decided they wanted to have a place where they could have their meetings, where they talk about how to chop up the world into digestible parts for them. For them. Um, yep. And so they thought Hawaii would be great because the hippies can't get in their little buses and come out and cause a problem. So they wanted to turn Hawaii into what they call the Geneva of the Pacific. So that they could come and work their uh, world domination plans. And a bunch of hippies with pots had a parade um, and banged on pots. And the city sent, um, I think, spent 7 to $9 million on riot cops. Uh, for that <laughs> event? <laughs> yeah, for that event. Oh, they got anyway. to spend that budget somewhere or they won't get the same budget next year. It was a very exciting scene to be in Honolulu, Hawaii, in the art scene in the beginning of this century. Do you think yes, you have was. a terrorism file, boys? Well, Patriot Act made it legal, and Patriot Act is now the USA Freedom Act, which has been reauthorized in 2020. So if I'm doing anything right, I certainly do have such a file. And we could theoretically <laughs> find out what our file is, right? Like, that's what the Patriot Act means, is that anybody's info can be grabbed, so I could grab my own info. Well, you can file a Freedom of Information request. About myself. About yourself. 
I would also like to know how many stupid little accounts I've given my email to, like Walgreens and CVS, so that I can delete them. <laughs> my friend James Tripp, who I did stand-up comedy with in uh, Los Angeles in the 90s, uh, this is one of his jokes. So I wrote the FBI to see if they had a file on me. They said, we do now. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you asking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? Yeah, and we were, uh, the same 200 of us were protesting Bush's wars around that period as well, into the mid to late aughts. Yep. But then when they became Obama's wars, uh, the left suddenly lost interest in anti-militarism, anti-imperialism. Isn't that so strange? It's like, I know so many um, red-ish friends right now who are kind of like, wow, it was really great Trump didn't take us into another war, and I really don't want to be doing the war thing as much anymore. And then my left friends are kind of like, well, but we have to. And I'm like, what is happening? This is my lifetime. You know, it's flip-flopping. No no fly in Ukraine. Send them more javelin weapons. NATO Uh, stuff. Let's ramp it up as quickly, as dangerously as possible. (laughs) That's from the left. Right. Yeah. Weird. Very weird. Strangeness. Very weird, that part. (laughs) So, um, what are you doing over in Oregon, there, boys? Without giving well, too much away. Well, the main reason I'm here is to participate in the Santo Daime Church. Oh, can you explain that to our listeners who don't know what that means? Sure. Santo Daime is a Catholic religion that places a great emphasis on Mother Mary, and I had a Mother Mary mystical experience at her cottage in Ephesus, Turkey, and I had another vision at. Mahabod, where Buddha attained enlightenment. But in addition to the emphasis on Mother Mary, Virgin Mary, there's a heavy overlay of indigenous Amazonian influences and the use of ayahuasca tea as a sacrament. And that is a tea created over many, many days in a ceremonial fashion, utilizing the bark of a vine and the leaf of a chacruna bush and the men take care of the vine and the women take care of the chakruna and it is distilled in a very ceremonial fashion and we could go into the the legal background of the psychedelic renaissance in terms of science and religion as the show progresses i have a feeling we'll zoom in and zoom out multiple times yeah yeah and the the church i'm participating in here has two district court opinions uh, against Mukasey, who was George W. Bush's last attorney general, and uh, Holder, which was uh, Obama's attorney general, that make it perfectly legal to utilize ayahuasca in the tech in the context of a religious ceremony under the the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, and another church, the Unidad de Vegetal also has the legal right to use ayahuasca tea in their religious ceremonies. But these decisions are unique to these particular churches and are not a universal uh, legal allowance for religions to claim to be able to use ayahuasca tea under uh, religious ceremonies universally. But they are important foundational stones for the use of psychoactives in a religious context. That was like the most amazing, (laughs) normal explanation (laughs) of psychedelic use I've ever heard. Like, bravo. I feel like you could say that at like 
a conference in a nursing home and they would be like, mm, yes, yes, but, if that makes, you know, like. That's the goal. People people yeah, that yeah. have been through the brainwashing of the 70s, 80s, and 90s would probably still, oh, yes, a sacrament in a church for the uh, purpose of a holy transcendental experience. Mm. I do that thing. And I'm like, wow, boys, well done. That was really cool. Well, thank you. I think it's important Although that we're I'll able tell to you, have the these conversations. The, the ceremony that I attended so far, it's only been one, was what they call a dance work. And there's four very simple steps, four very simple sets of steps that consist of the four different dances. But you do them for eight hours standing, dancing. Wow. And I can guarantee you I will never ride a bicycle for three hours the day before a dance work again. <laughs> Wow. That'll get you into a primal place, I'm guessing. How are your legs the next day? I took Sunday off, to be sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the Lord's Day from what I hear, so it's probably good. Yeah, and there's a lot of spiritual resources in Rogue Valley and Bear Creek Valley, the area around Medford and Ashland, Oregon. And uh, I'm participating in Shiva Bhakti Kirtan, which uh, Brother Evno was a big part of in uh, Honolulu and uh, a peer-led Buddhist Sangha and a Zazen Sangha, which I haven't participated in Zazen yet here, but I intend to because one of the other types of Santo Daime works is a meditation work, a concentration, they call it. And that involves not dancing for seven hours, but sitting Zazen for seven hours uh, or maybe I, more like four to six, but that's quite a long time. That what might does even, Zazen mean? That might even be harder for me, sitting still. Yeah. What is Zazen? Sitting still, sitting? breath control. And at our at my middle age years, uh, everything's getting creakier. <laughs> yeah. Sitting, I did sit Zazen once for six hours and boy, was my back sore that whole day. Explain Zazen, if you will. Sure. Zazen is sitting meditation that is an integral part of Chan Buddhism in China, which then became Zen Buddhism in Japan. And it's basically sitting cross-legged for hours on end. And it's also very important in Tibetan Buddhism. And to be fair, Mahayana and and Theravada Buddhism as well. But uh, Zazen refers to sitting meditation within the Zen Buddhist practice. So it's not any particular position like crisscross applesauce or? It's not quite Indian or what quote unquote Indian style sitting cross-legged. It's a little different to create a firmer base with your knees and legs, but it's Mm. it's pretty much that. That sounds nice. I like sitting cross-legged if I have like a pillow under my butt. Because yeah. that really helps my lower my lower back. Otherwise, will get super super sore. Yeah, a lot of Zen uh, Dharma centers they understand the Western people are not that uh, uh, don't have a great facility in sitting still or sitting cross legged for long periods of time. So they they'll let people use uh, chairs and whatnot. I'll give you a quick Zen in Honolulu example. Uh, There are three or four people that I credit the most with bringing Zen Buddhism to America and the West. People like DJ Suzuki, uh, Alan Watts, and Robert Aitken. And Robert Aitken had uh, the Diamond Sangha in Honolulu. And I was, where is this Sangha? Where is this Sangha? I can't find it anywhere. And it turns out 
my ex-wife's friend was Robert Aitken's secretary. And so shortly after I started my relationship with her and met this guy, he was, oh, you want to have lunch with Robert Aitken? And I'm, oh, what? <laughs> yes, I do. And uh, so I went, I, I participated in the Diamond Sangha periodically, but not with the regularity that I would have liked. Mm. And the Diamond Sangha being a particular kind of meditation or a place or a... Sangha means a group of people typically associated with a place. Uh, just before I, I was in Benares, where the village industry is burning dead bodies on the Ganges, right. about 10 kilometers in India, and about 10 kilometers away is Sarna, where Buddha had his first Sangha, his first group of devotees. And not so very far away is Mahabod, where he had achieved Satori, enlightenment. So Sarna was the first Sangha, the first community of people practicing Buddhism. And so Sangha means any group. And the physical location of Diamond Sangha was actually in the back of Pololo Valley. Oh, oh yeah. Where uh, Brother Dark uh, Used exercised to run. his green thumb. I had the yeah. only organic landscape nursery in the state of Hawaii. Thank you. Yeah, and before I knew Dark, I lived in the back of Palolo Valley on the very road to the farming area that Dark was in on La E Road. We yeah. were the second driveway in. So I grew up in Palolo, which has a lot of public housing and very few uh, Caucasians. And I also mostly grew up in Kalihi, which is uh, a very both are very working class ne uh, neighborhoods with a lot of public housing. And very few uh, Caucasians. So I had a pretty rough upbringing, actually, in Honolulu. But I still love it to, to death. Did, did, it's too expensive. Did they have the Punch Howley Day on Friday. Is that right? That's a... Kill Howley Day. Kill Howley. Oh, right, right, oh. right. But fortunately, that was only once a year. Oh, good. Wow. That's a lot of effort to expend every week. The Purge Hawaii style. <laughs> so you were born and raised on Hawaii then? In Hawaii. I was born and raised. I was born in Kapilani OBGYN hospital, like Obama. So my daughter, like Obama, that means I too am also Kenyan. <laughs> so that, I guess my friend, um, my daughter, uh, Zoe Mahina was also, is also Kenyan because she was born at the same hospital as you were. Yeah. That's the main birthing hospital for Honolulu. Oh yeah. my goodness. Well then. Uh, and uh, I'd like to say yes, that say Obama dropped uh, more bombs and started more wars than W. Bush. So the left needs to consider that uh, he had a more successful career as a mass murderer and actually killed Anwar Alaki, a American citizen, and his teenage child without trial or judgment, Ooh. which is a terrible precedent. Super weird that I never saw the that in the news. Uh, without diving too deep into the politics, because we have so much more interesting stuff to cover. Who, yeah. Where is the Psychedelia, left? Can you tell collapse. Me, can you tell me where the left is? I, I, You mentioned the left, and I haven't seen them in a while, so I didn't know if you knew where they were recently. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, hang on, let me look. They're <laughs> probably hiding under something. Uh, are they under my cup? Uh, <laughs> perhaps under my notebook. <laughs> They're hiding because they care, boys. No, obviously we can't really watch too much cable news or formerly esteemed newspapers like Washington Post or New York Times, even though Washington Post, New York Times, MSNBC, and CNN, their viewership are self-identified Democrats at 90%. Wow. Yeah. And Fox, of course, is 90% Republican. So the way that the news environment has evolved, it's uh, tried to attract very specific demographics instead of uh, trying to appeal to the broad middle like, say, Walter Cronkite and right. the gang did just back Just telling in, the news. Yeah, you know, just calling balls and strikes straight down the middle yeah. was at least their ideology. But with this market segmentation of the news environment, those left quasi-Democrat organs are all corporatist Democratic sources of information warfare. Can you give, so, like, yeah, can you give, like, a so, little delineation between like what is a liberal and what is a neoliberal well neoliberalism is a economic ideology that basically transmogrifies capitalism into a transnational corporate kleptocracy that socializes the costs to the planet of its omnicidal destruction <laughs> and privatizes the benefits of the quarterly profits. And liberal, I think, is an appellation that some people call it Blue Anon, some people call it Blue MAGA. Right. And I think it certainly fits MSNBC, CNN, Washington Post, and New York Times. So to find actual leftists, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist leftists, you need to look towards the ever-evolving new media ecosystem, which includes post-orthodoxy. Although I think you guys are neither left nor right, perhaps a bit lefty, but more focused on cognitive sovereignty. But in this new media ecology, I would look at the gray zone with Max Blumenthal and uh, Ben Nixon or Dixon and push back with Aaron Maté and Jimmy Dore, a comedian, yeah, and Jimmy Dore news. references those guys all the time, Aaron Mate and yeah. um, Blumenthal. And um, I just found a new one, uh, Primo Radical. He has all, on all of those heroes. And, of course, RT, which has been lambasted as uh, Russian state propaganda, had on anti-imperialist, anti-war voices like Abby Martin. One of my Lee favorites. Kemp. Yeah, the Empire and Files. My, my one of my two favorite public intellectuals, Chris Hedges, who, in addition to Cornell West, Chris Hedges is my main man. And they just got booted off of RT. And, the, you know, Tucker Carlson is uh, crazy, of course, but he <laughs> has on Glenn Greenwald, another actual leftist hero, and Jimmy Dore. And MSNBC and CNN won't touch actual leftists like those with a 10-foot pole. Well, that's that's why the, uh, Jimmy Dore is a right-winger, you know, because he was on Fox. Because he said bad things about certain medical treatments, even though he had those medical treatments and was, in fact, injured by those medical treatments. It still makes him um, uh, a trumper because he said that he had a bad time. 
Yeah, and I see an anti vaxxer who got the vax. Yeah, Russell Brand is one of those guys that I, you know, I I think the jury is still out. I enjoy his show. I enjoy his analysis. He has a huge following. He's five million people whenever he's online or who watch those shows. Um, Well, he also had like a career beforehand to sort of scoop his folks, bring his folks into the fold. And I I appreciate the view that he's bringing up. He does several shows. He does like shows for transcendental psychedelic people and shows for straight up news analysis and shows for people that like comedy. Like he has like three programs. He has a he has a production team. Yeah. By the way, we have somebody coming into the post orthodoxy production team potentially uh, to, to be announced soon. Potentially. So that means Fingers hopefully more and better just, content. I wish I could just spout like I'm doing now, but I need a production assistant. <laughs> yeah, so you, do we. you should have a podcast too, boys, especially as you're exploring all of these um, unique medicinal experiences. If you're introduced, uh, if you're in, interested in uh, uh, finding some nice um, microdoses of Boyce Brown, you can go to his Stone Fruit Substack page. What's the address for this for the, your Substack page? Stonefruit.substack.com has my where it's where I commit journalism. <laughs> yes, you don't and, get to call yourself a journalist. Yes, and I just dropped something last night that ended with uh, the fact that the West's sanctions against Ukraine are actually pushing Russia and China even closer together, which will be the axis that eclipses the collapsing American empire. I do hope we can go into that in greater detail in the future. And my uh, video presence is Stonefruit Media. The mask is off. The Stonefruit Media that has been jumping into post-orthodoxy is I. So you can find Stonefruit Media on YouTube. On YouTube. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's just kind of a holding space for now. I did some videos of my early part of my bicycle journey from the Bay Area to the middle of New Mexico, thousands of miles. But also there's my portfolio website www.stonefruit.media which has my old films, my writing, my visual art, my stonefruit word image collage which is my ticket to heaven. Renaissance man. Wait, say more about that ticket to heaven thing. What does that mean? Uh you like to- Rimbaud, <laughs> I dropped a masterpiece in my late teenage years. Rimbaud quit writing poetry at 19 and I think is easily regarded the greatest poet of the French language. And I started my Stonefruit word image collage at Sarah Lawrence College, a major writing, dance, and theater college outside of New York City. And just on my own for my own amusement, but it's uh, a work of staggering genius and heartbreaking beauty. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> no, more people should talk about themselves yes, like absolutely. that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> which which is available. I scanned everything, uh, everything in my life that's two dimensional. I scanned, including my art, which is at that URL that you just plugged in, Ainsley. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm excited to check that out later. Yeah. Are there are there any parts of your experience with the Santo Daime Church that you don't want to tell us about? <laughs> How do you answer that question? <laughs> that, that reminds me. You remember before the Ollie G HBO TV show? And Ollie G, the movie, yes, he had an Ollie G BBC show. And there was, this was before anyone really knew that it was all a put on. 
but he had on some major guests like Sam Donaldson and the number two at CIA. And he goes to the number two at the CIA. What is the most secretest thing that you can't tell me? <laughs> That's it. That's what she just asked you. Yeah. So Sorry. what <laughs> okay. is the most secretest thing of Santo Daime that you can't tell me? I, you know, it might have worked, too, if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. Ah, Gen X loves a good Scooby-Doo reference. <laughs> I need the bumper sticker. What would Scooby-Doo? LOL. Mm. No, I, I, I think uh, the, the daime, which means give me, uh, gives you the energy to dance for eight hours, as many entheogens do. The berserkers, the word berserk comes from the Scottish tribe berserkers, who did mushrooms in Scotland and went rampaging south against the British. And when I was at Sarah Lawrence, uh, a friend and I would take mushrooms and go run for 20 miles. So psychedelics can give you quite a bit of energy. But I think situated within a formal religious context, it can provide a substantial amount of spiritual growth and psychological self-reflection in a very concentrated time frame mm. and ayahuasca and Ibo game uh, show great promise for helping addicts recover. And I'm a recovering alcoholic and it was very good for me in that respect. I learned a lot about the psychological sources of my addiction and we can talk about, well, maybe this is a good segue to psychedelic science. I, I can just lay some aspects of it out pretty quickly. Absolutely. Ketamine is already legal for hard to treat depression. Mm -hmm. MDMA and psilocybin are in the final stages of full FDA approval for hard to treat depression and PTSD. In the U.S. In the U.S. Mm -hmm. Food and Drug Administration. It seems as though they will be required to be ensconced within a credential therapy environment of a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a licensed clinical social worker, a therapist. That is unclear to me yet, but probably some sort of framework like that. So that one's already legal, two are coming. And LSD, ayahuasca, and ibogaine are being studied medically and scientifically, particularly for the uh, anti-addiction properties. And ibogaine seems to be an absolute miracle cure for kicking opioids, which mm. Lord knows we have a horrifying epidemic of addiction of that drug in America. But I don't know where ayahuasca and ibogaine are in the FDA pipeline. Mm. Well, the good thing with ayahuasca, at least from what I've heard, is that this we have we have a workaround until it becomes legal federally in the U.S., which is this religious aspect that, much like any other religious ceremony with edible sacraments, this this has some protection. Um, 
with a practitioner present who knows what you're going to be going through and can guide you through the experience and help you pull something beneficial from it rather than being like, what the heck did I just eat? Oh, my God, I'm going to run around the neighborhood. You know, like um, it's it is a guided um I don't want to say professional, but a, a yeah, like a guided professional experience, much like they're trying to do for these other substances, which have been proven to help people with heavy traumas and addictions. Yeah, not only addiction, but severe PTSD. Yeah. And there are a number of, well, there's, there's ayahuasca retreats all over the world, and especially South America. But there are a number of game clinics in Mexico and uh, people kicking opioids and other addictive substances go there. But a lot of vets that have very severe PTSD, mm-hmm. which is often comorbid with addictions, uh, domestic abuse perhaps even, you know, vets that are in a very horrible, horrible, dark, dark place because of our endless war go to these treatment facilities in Mexico, take Ibogaine and Ibogaine has no use as a recreational drug and no potential for abuse, but it does force one to revisit their worst, most traumatic memories and all of their physical and moral choices but in a way that is comforting and allows for radical self-forgiveness. And a lot of vets have (coughs) said it was uh, amazing. Uh, Can you explain? Oh, he's got to do a thing. Let's let's look up uh, Ibogaine and explain that to folks for people who don't know what that is. I am, yes. Um, I, I pulled it up. Oh, you pulled it up? Because I just pulled it up okay, on the internet. Then you explain what Ibogaine is for folks who don't know. Uh, Ibogaine is a naturally occurring psychoactive substance found in plants in the family Apocyniaceae, such as uh, all these different kinds. <laughs> it's a psychedelic with disassociative properties. Mm. Now, the word disassociative I take issue with, although because to me what it seems as though psychedelics do is they reassociate you mm. with things that you have disassociated from. And that gives people a very weird experience. Mm, that's, that's an interesting take on it. You know, they say it's a disassociative, th- meaning it cuts you off from reality or whatever, right? Right. But to me, it seems like it's an associative. I've always, I've had kind of like when I say dissociative, I I feel like that's a negative thing when I say it as well, and I don't know where I got that from. Um, but anyway, yes, what's the, the, the plant? Isn't it like a tree bark? Let's I, look at some images. I think it's a tree bark. Ebo game is a root bark. A root bark. Okay. From a tree indigenous to Africa somewhere. To Gabon. Yeah. They look you, like uh, horrible little yams. Do you know if there is a, is that a plant that, you know, that's where they found it, but is that a plant that could be grown anywhere? Do you know? Like well, it, it within the same. Prohibits, Gabon prohibits the export of Ebo game, Iboga plants. Oh boy. They got a monopoly on it. Well, there are there are some in Equatorial Guinea and parts of Cameroon. Okay. And in in Gabon, it too has a its traditional usage in uh, the Bwiti religious ceremony, 
for initiation of youth into Bwiti society and religion, mm. a coming of age uh, ritual. And <clears throat> there's psychedelic tourism there, as there's psychedelic tourism for ayahuasca in the Amazon mm-hmm. and elsewhere, which, I mean, there's pros and cons to psychedelic tourism, but I think most people going there are going for relief of addictions, relief of PTSD, spiritual exploration, psychological growth for very positive reasons. Yeah, I wonder, uh, my first thought, having been in the, 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 the world of permaculture, landscape, and sustainability, I, 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 if Ibogaine uh, grows in its popularity and its ability to treat things that the planet really needs right now as people uh, suffering less of these, these maladies, uh, it makes me worry for the plant. So it feels like I would like to see, I was just wondering if there are people who are propagating the plant in a way that is sustainable so that we can harvest it for this thing versus people running out and chopping down all the trees to get their, to get their root and, and, and uh, chopping us off from, from that medicine. But I don't know much about I, that or if you do. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly and I've looked into it. You can buy plants in Cameroon. Okay. <clears throat> and I have grown ayahuasca and two types of chacruna myself. And I was given the kuleana, that's Hawaiian for responsibility, for the ayahuasca and the chacruna. The, the provenance went like this, from, a sh- from an Ecuadorian Amazonian shaman to a shulman, one of the main Western pharmacologist experts, ethnopharmacology of all psychedelic plants, to the ayahuasquero, a brewer, who had a PhD in ethnopharmacology to me and his attitude was to that. He didn't have land, but to give ayahuasca and chacruna to people that did with the idea of propagating the growth and cultivation of ayahuasca and chacruna for exactly what you said, dark Mm. for the fact that it is desperately needed as an invaluable mode of consciousness now as global capitalism teeters on the brink of collapse and industrial civilization itself teeters on the brink of collapse in a slow series of cascading shocks of geopolitics, macrostructural economics and ecological collapse. It's coming. So we need these sacred medicines to hurt our loins to enable us to create communities and what the wobbly said y'all are in a strong labor town wobbly said to build a new world in the shell of the old Mm. and certainly all psychedelic medicines used correctly and appropriately are a indispensable part of that mission and that's why i did look up if iboga plants are available for purchase, and it would appear that they are in Cameroon. So that sounds like a field trip for us one day down the road, Mr. Sevier. Uh, when I lived in an undisclosed location in uh, on the island of Oahu, I lived in a Vietnam War era, Korean War era tent, like a 18 by 18 foot tent uh, with ayahuasca vines creeping all over it. My tent was actually on the uh, location where people were conducting ayahuasca circles for a period of time. So I was tending vines 
outside my tent for uh, a long time when I was in Hawaii. We were also growing the Jacuna um, bush uh, on the same location. So I've had a long relationship. I had a long relationship with the vine, the ayahuasca vine and the Jacuna plant before I ever did it myself. <clears throat> and I just fell in love with the plant of ayahuasca because it grows fast. Yes. And I have this dream. This is the dream. If anybody wants to throw some money at post-orthodoxy so I can realize this dream, like <laughs> quick fifty, sixty thousand dollars um, <laughs> We could, uh, I, 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 ayahuasca has this unique, it grows like rope. So it has strands within strands within strands. And it looks like rope when you cross-section it. Very and, curly. And um, when the vines cross each other, they fuse together. So um, I have this dream of patio furniture made out of ayahuasca that has grown <laughs> into shape. You grow, you make the ayahuasca, you, you shape the ayahuasca into um, a shape of some form. A sculpture throne. Or a throne. And then you just let it fuse itself together. Um, chop it off and then have a cup of tea and sit in it. You know, that's my dream. If anybody wants to support that, you can uh, find us at postorthodoxy.com. We have a subscription link. <laughs> chip, chip in to send Boyce and Dark to it. Yeah, Cameroon. To Cameroon. Yes, to look into, make sure that the uh, the Eba game um, source is uh, to check out its sustainability and Fair see trade, if there's anything we can do for the plant. Ethical. Yeah, yeah, and done with all utmost respect to the Buiti and. Uh, whatever support they and plant medicine need for us to, in good conscience, take it to another continent, because that is its natural home. But our objective would only be to enhance our cognitive sovereignty, spiritual growth, and uh, and thereby improve the wellness of the planet around us. Right. right, and it's it's the first world doing the most damage, so it's the first world that needs the help the most. Mm. I agree. Um, I, I I've had this theory a long time about um, different plant intelligences, and how some plants have taken over the world. For example, <clears throat> marijuana, which came from a very few isolated areas in the world, but somehow is living in people's basements rent free. Like uh, <laughs> the plant has done a great job. Yeah, marijuana doing fine. Of moving all around the planet and and extending its territory. Um, so I don't necessarily think taking it out of its home place is necessarily a terrible thing. I, I don't either. Let the originals be the original, but let's see where the plant wants to go and where it wants yes. to thrive. Because I know that marijuana is thriving in all kinds of unlikely places right now. Right. Yeah. So can we speak a little bit to um, members of our audience who may have a loved one, who may have a loved one who was raised under the deep, deep brainwashing uh, in the U.S. of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where they basically bitch-slapped anybody who was talking about anything outside of for-profit pharmaceutical medication uh, with the concept that if you take any of these things, you will probably quit your job, rape your best friend, and jump out of a moving vehicle. Um, and it, like Because there are people who, they heard all those things, they got imprinted with it. Like I heard those things. Like they got imprinted with the concept that Robert... Um, that JFK was murdered from the, behind the magic bullet. Yes. Yeah, and so and so they just and then they haven't heard anything since then. You know, so like what? How can we? We're talking about this very <clears throat> like this is a very clinical conversation about the benefits of um, these other 
these other substances we should have access to, we have the right to have access to. Like what you put in your body is not a crime and should not be a crime because a crime is inherently something that is causing harm to someone else. But we have criminalized what you do with your body um, instead of the consequences of what you might do while having put something in your body, such as like drunk driving. You should not get drunk and then drive in a situation where you might hurt someone else. That's a crime. You getting drunk, however, is not a crime and it should be that way with anything else that you decide to put in your body because that's not the definition of a crime. But can we talk about like how do we reintroduce uh, these conversations into society? How do we help people heal from the mentality that that they that they got in their youth and they're just like this is just the way it is. I suggest people that um, do marijuana are bad. Acid is for my youth, you know, like oh I haven't done acid mushrooms in thirty years. That was what you know, like I grew up and I'm like what. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I think a good intro for people would be to get familiar with the works of uh, Bill Hicks. Uh, Bill That's Hicks. not a good intro. He's excessively. No, I think he's a great he's intro. Crazy. He's crazy. He's And Terrence McKenna. And Terrence, Terrence McKenna, McKenna absolutely. Like an intro. And That's Terrence a- McKenna's brother, Dennis McKenna, who has a PhD in ethnopharmacology. Paul Stamets. Paul Stamets. Fantastic. I say, I say Bill Hicks yes. because Bill- I think it's important to laugh. And Bill Hicks says, why are things like nicotine and alcohol legal, which do absolutely nothing Nothing for you, you. and drugs that open your eyes up to see how you're being fucked every day of your life are illegal? Wow, you sound just like him. So (laughs) I've only watched, I've only listened to those albums 30 times. Personal hero right there. Yes. Um, Mine too. I think there's different pathways for people to come to this. This is a pathway. This is a very calm, sober. Look, he has a collar on his shirt. This is serious. Yeah. Um, this is a button-down Oxford shirt. Yeah. Come on. I'm or, putting on the costume of respectability to talk about psychedelic drugs and cognitive sovereignty. We appreciate that. That's I put awesome. on a I put on a white collar shirt for whenever I did. Don't the, these glasses make me look intellectual as well? You look like you know so what you're talking smart. about, and you probably can. Yeah. Forget the fact that I have two masters and a PhD. It's all in the glasses. And yeah. the collar. I don't even have lenses. Collar. I don't even have lenses in these things. I just wear it for the Buttons. for the cachet. That's not true. <laughs> this might be a good uh, moment for me to do a three, two or three minute journey of the legal history of uh, prohibition and how the psychedelic renaissance has launched. Break it uh, down. Wow, Break it down. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, Nixon said that Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America. Because people that turned on, tuned in, and dropped out would no longer fight his war in Southeast Asia. Not just Vietnam, but Cambodia, where we killed 300,000 people. And Laos, where we dropped more ordnance than we dropped in World War II. So in the context of tough on crime, he instituted the war on drugs, whose culminating piece of legislation was the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. That put on Schedule 1, the most restrictive schedule, such, such amalgamations as heroin, LSD, mescaline, MDMA, ecstasy. Uh, no, ecstasy got uh, made illegal in the mid-80s because it was a club drug. Psilocybin, peyote, and DMT. And for decades, that restricted any psychedelic research, even though LSD was uh, a vital part of psychiatry in the 50s. And Cary Grant tripped more than 30 times. So take that to 2000 and 
Johns Hopkins in 2000 had the first uh, FDA-approved psychedelic research, and there were a number of important milestones like uh, 2017, the FDMA called MDMA Breakthrough Therapy. Uh, it authorized phase two trials in 2018. Michael Fullan's book, How to Change Your Mind in 2018. Uh, Johns Hopkins studies in 2019 and Imperial College of London studies in 2019 and a spate of articles saying that this was uh, a breakthrough year, that year 2019. And then municipalities started decriminalizing uh, psilocybin. Denver in May 2019, Oakland in 2019, Santa Cruz in 2020, and <clears throat> Oregon decriminalized everything, although they didn't triple their counseling and wraparound services budget. That's unfortunate. And I'll just break in to say like people break in and talk. I need to go get a power cord. I'll be right. Yeah, back. sure thing. The first thing that people say when you say we need to decriminalize is that, uh, well, but what about the addicts? Someone's just going to have as much heroin as they want and then die. Or what about like kids that don't have the right education? I'm like, well, they should be getting that education because abstinence education doesn't work in any field. It doesn't work in sex and it doesn't work in driving before you have a license and it doesn't work in the chemical dependency scenario. Like abstinence education is not the right kind of education. We need to be teaching people how to understand what they're taking, what the various things they're taking will do to them, including alcohol and nicotine. People shouldn't just be going out and getting shwasted in their teens with no counseling and no education. And they shouldn't be getting shwasted on other substances without education or counseling. Mm. So when Boyce talks about how like Oregon decriminalized things, but didn't then put money into counseling and education and training and test kits and free needle exchange sites. Like Butte used to have a free needle exchange site, but they, the Christians in Butte and other concerned citizens got together and shut it down because of the mindset that we can't be encouraging people to be doing a quote unquote bad thing. So it's like, it's like, it's this backwards, people have got it backwards and we need, we need to massage those ideologies that like, if we have a free needle exchange where people who are using chemicals that require a needle can come in and get clean needles, that's bad and that's enabling and that's encouraging. And it's like, we need to, we need to massage that mindset because you're not going to stop people from doing those things. No, but if you do that, I might be at my job drinking a cup of coffee and somebody says hey there's free needles i'm like well damn i should start taking I heroin should go get addicted yeah <laughs> yeah like shit this is, free needles this totally is, worth it to start an uh, addiction into heroin and that comes from and i'll go right back to you voice after this that comes from this mindset that is a largely judeo-christian mindset that um uh the drug is the evil thing mm. heroin will just get you lsd will just get you and it's like, no, people turn to stuff like this because of something shitty going on. Lots of people have tried various substances and not become hooked because they don't have a shitty thing going on that they're trying to have escapism from or relief from, those sorts of things. So right. it's like average Joe with like a happy marriage and a job or whatever isn't going to just go out and be like, I think I have to do heroin every day now. No, well, if the if you offer free needles, you don't know, man. <laughs> well, it's also it's also um, weirdly because it's very weird that the Christians are the ones shutting down the free needle site because the Bible literally says, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." Thus saith the Lord. It's literally not the Christians' job to make sure that heroin addicts also get HIV. 
It's not the Christians. They're, it's their job to love people who are going through a hard time. Mm. Okay, boys, boys, back to you. <laughs> yes. <sighs> I think you're pointing to what Max Weber noted as the importance of the Protestant work ethic to capitalism mm. and the valorization of the waking consciousness as the only appropriate consciousness for the Western individual to have. And the glorification and, of suffering. And the that too, and the avowed Puritan roots of the American psyche, which do not allow for any fun or anything <laughs> outside of uh, religious observance and work. Mm-hmm. And what I think you're speaking to more broadly, Ainsley, is what's known in the medical field, in the public health field, and drug field as harm reduction. Yes. Let's look at That's Vancouver what we should be focusing and Zurich. On. Vancouver and Zurich of great examples of forward thinking cities that uh, just have clean needles and uh, places to shoot up that are safe. And Portugal is the perfect reigning example of a country that took harm reduction across the board throughout its whole country. Mm-hmm. No, there's a, they have these billboards like um, Zoe took this drug and did not die because her friends had an OD medication in the glove compartment. Like, and the whole billboard series is so-and-so did this drug and did not die because that should be the point. The point shouldn't be people who'd make mistakes should get fucked. The point should be that people who make mistakes don't die and have a chance to maybe not make that mistake again. That's harm reduction. That's harm reduction as opposed to abstinence education, which is stupid. Mad. Ashland, Oregon has a little police cottage on the main street of its historic downtown and there's an in case of emergency break glass supply of narcan fuck yeah that is harm reduction that is a forward-thinking municipality (coughs) and in addition to zurich and vancouver having clean needles and uh, safe shoot-up sites let's really take a moment to look at what portugal did when they decriminalized everything they didn't just randomly decriminalize everything like Oregon has, they provided the intensive counseling and therapy and wraparound services for employment mm-hmm. and housing mm-hmm. and therapy. That like all the things social... that cause people to get hooked on something in the first place, which right. is not having a job, not having a home, not having a safe place to keep your stuff while you go look for work. Yeah. Being Hope squeezed out. Hopelessness. Yeah. Being homeless, being a vet, being squeezed out by the uh, incredibly rapacious nature of modern capitalism mm. and the insane, worse than gilded age levels of income concentration. They, these are diseases of affliction, as Chris Hedges and so many other towering figures say. These are last desperate measures of people who are in serious pain. And if they have access to wean themselves off of the more uh, destructive drugs like opioids and alcohol and in the context of support for employment and housing and counseling, then Portugal proves that it has incredibly beneficial public health outcomes. And I think that that is such a promising model for the rest of uh, the so-called quote-unquote first world. And the sooner we embrace it, the better. 
I, I think also uh, when they decriminalized, it wasn't like now they have to spend a ton of money taking care of the druggies. Money that was being spent on incarceration and and the enforcement agencies were switched over to being able to do counseling and therapies and these other things that might keep people from becoming criminals and taxing the criminal justice system. So it wasn't like they just had to find new money. It was just a matter of transferring priorities, if I remember correctly. Yes, and by taking the addict's life away from the carceral state, the prison industrial complex, where they just can't create a sustainable, fulfilling life because they're hooked by their addiction into the prison industrial complex again and again and again. They're trapped. And that's why harm reduction has to be the only model to look towards in the future. Which I found the posters. They're up on the screen. It's from Norway. This is the Association for Safer Drug Policies in Norway. Mm. And you can learn more yeah. um, at their website, um, which I'll just type into the chat because it's yeah. in Norway-ish and I can't read it. Um, but it's basically like, Sarah did not die when she tried MDMA. She took just half a dose and waited to feel the effects. Mm. Thomas did not die when he tried GHB. He avoided alcohol all night and dosed correctly. Sophie did not die when she tried LSD. She'd had the substance tested and knew what it contained. That is a f- that's something people should have. We should have access to testing. They should be regulated in quality and in strength, and we should be able to know how much we're taking of some of these things. Mm. John did not die when he overdosed on heroin. He was not alone, and his friends had naloxone. Rather than all the kids that do die when they overdose, because everybody is too terrified to call for help. Because the implications it might have on their life or being associated because with somebody, yeah, yeah, or being we're caught. Doing yeah, conf- co- consequence measures to try to stop these things rather than harm reduction education. Let's do that as a society. <sighs> we think. Come in mute. Come in mute. We can yeah, hear you. We can, can you hear, hear you. Yeah, I can. Great. Uh, so I'm very encouraged. Yeah, it's not only having safe, clean needles and a safe place to shoot up. But it's the purity of what you're ingesting as well, mm-hmm. because in the last two to three years, people aren't dying so much from opioid overdoses. They're dying from the fentanyl. That's mixed into opium and they're never sure how much fentanyl is in their opioids. And that has over a hundred. Oh no. Oh no. Sad signal. Wait for it. Wait for it. I do like that robot, robot sound that we go into. Sometimes I fantasize that that's actually, it's like revealing not what the cover voice, but like. what we actually sound like, you know, uh, tuning in from some other dimension and, <laughs> and, and making sounds through the meat puppets. Right. That might be our natural sound. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? That might be, yeah, well, and, or at least it's the sound that the computer is translating us from, from some strange exactly. digital tune that tune. It then turns into the sound of organic. It's like a voice voices. pedal of like, do the human thing. No, I also wonder that about colors. Yeah. Small segue, like the the number of people who are finding out that they're some kind of colorblind, 
Um, uh. It's starting to make me wonder, like, is anyone actually seeing the same thing no. in the universe? Apparently not. I don't think so. And I think uh, accepting that is part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. None of us are seeing the same thing or having the same experience. And it's the highest level of hubris to assume that your experience is the experience someone else is having. I accept that. Nice. I also is, am still challenged by it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I assume that the thing that I saw is the same thing the other person saw and then make assumptions when they may have been looking at a completely different thing at the same time. It's true. And the miscommunication well, happens. And like how, how, you, how you felt growing up and the way that you were treated in your town growing up mm. is not necessarily or rarely ever the way that other people were treated growing up, especially yes. if that other person is a different gender, a different skin color, a different um, financial bracket than yeah. you were when you were growing up. So it's not even just like what the person is looking at, but the filter through which the person is interpreting this stuff because of all the whatnot before. Right. Different than their whatnot before. Exactly. <laughs> hey, can you go to his uh, stone? Fr- I sent you a link in the yeah, in messenger. Can absolutely. you show that word collage thing that he did? Stonefruit.media. Yeah, it looks like the Vonage manuscript or something. I just love these harm reduction posters. This is yeah. what I want. This is what I want. I want people to have education, harm reductive education, and I uh, want people to have um, access to testing, access to drugs that are clean, that mm. people haven't added a bunch of fuckery to to try to make more of a profit. Right. You know, but then I'm also weary, uh, leery at the same time because potentially um, once various governments come in and uh, start regulating things, they might not be regulating things in a uh, in like a godly way. Sure. How do I say that better? I don't know. Uh, I'm worried that if the FDA godly start, way, yeah, yeah, I know, <laughs> godly in the truest sense of godliness. But like, if the FDA starts be, being like, you know what, we're going to decriminalize cocaine and we're going to regulate it, and now I just don't. I also still don't trust the cocaine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh! All right, um, I will go to Boyce's art thing shortly. I have. Um, Do you have a, any questions or? A message. So anytime someone sends me a message on Postorthodoxy, I'm going to read it um, anonymously. So question, how come it's never religious people who are the reason for the misery and plagues that God brings? Huh. What do you think, boys? The misery? Who's not responsible? This is a somewhat philosophical, ironic question from an audience member. How come it's never religious people who are the reason for the misery and plagues that God brings? Hmm. Right. Well, there's a lot to unpack. You guys are both victims of. Yeah, you're both uh, recovering victims of fundamentalist religion, Mm -hmm. which I think on balance is more negative than positive. But if you look at the religious traditions worldwide, of course, they're more on balance positive than negative. And you know what I always think of when I think of religion is what Karl Barth, the German philosopher, called the Axial Age. What, what's that? In 400 uh. BC, yeah, in 400 BC, all around the world as America, America, as the world, <laughs> as civilization, as Homo sapiens, emerged from the Neolithic period, wisdom traditions spouted all over, like Hinduism in China, uh, Kung Tzu in China, Buddha in India, in Nepal, 
uh, Moses in Palestine, Pythagoras and the early philosophers in Greece. It was uh, an amazing cultural moment of sovereignty, dare I Oh, no. Oh, oh. It was an amazing moment. That's where we left it. The Axial Age. Pull up the Axial Age. I will. Yeah. Pull it up uh, right I now. learned about that I was when I was um, going into uh, listening to John Vervecki and his uh, Meaning Crisis video, uh, series. Yes. Uh, where that he, was awesome. He did a nice breakdown of what the, the importance of the Axial Age. It was kind of where we started thinking about thinking. So the term Axial... Because like, this is, again that sort of feeling in your mind that probably your experience is the way things have either always been or the way that other people are experiencing them. And I, it's for me, it was really eye-opening to be like, no, the, the, the way that I'm experiencing the world right now is not the way that the world actually is right now or has always been. So if I go out on a prairie and I'm driving around in the prairie, it's like I'm experiencing smells, I'm experiencing sounds, I'm experiencing different wind patterns than they ever had. Right. You know, like they didn't have these same smells and wind patterns 500 years ago on this prairie. Right. You know, um, the clouds in the sky were different. They say that um, sailors used to be able to navigate the planet by some stars in the daytime because the atmosphere was so clear that some of the stars actually shone through to Earth, the stars being other suns. In the mm-hmm. daytime. Because they look back at some of the charts that these people were navigating by, and, and these charts are like, oh, like they're writing down the position this star would have been at in the daytime. Right. Not the position that it would have been at while navigating at night. Mm. Like these natal charts and records of the ship's log are where the stars would have been during the daytime, which we know now because we have fancy telescopes and measuring instruments and stuff like that. But they knew that back then because they could see some of them. Or maybe those, um, the projectors on the pyramids that project the stars from a flat earth Mm. just had stronger light bulbs back then. So the Axial Age, coined by German philosopher Karl Jaspers in the 1800s, refers to the period Jaspers. between Jaspers, thank you, refers to the period between 900 and 300 BCE when the intellectual, philosophical and religious systems that came to shape subsequent human society and culture emerged. So I guess as people began being able to think about things rather than just how to live and have not rain on you while you're sleeping, then they, the luxury came along of, of philosophy and Then music. thinking about thinking. Thinking about yeah. problems instead of just like, now I must go find food. Now I must go eat. Now or, I must go. Or thinking about, <laughs> thinking about your individual process of thinking about those things. Like, I think that's where it zoomed out into another dimension yeah. of thinking. So this right? is like the Greeks, right? right? Greece, is that what they're saying? Greece, yeah, Pythagoras. And you know, I've read all philosophers: uh, Socrates, <laughs> Plato, Mediocrities. What? <laughs> you remember these pants? You buy these pants. He was a playwright. <laughs> <laughs> Mediocrities was an early American. Actually, philosopher. I'll tell you. Uh, I went and saw Parthenon in Athens, mm-hmm. and it was in dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces all over the 
the the Mesa up there, the Mesa mm. in Athens. And it was only half an hour after it had opened and there were already 5,000 tourists. So I was, oh, bummer deal. But then I did what I always like to do. And I just walked around, ni ele, as they say in Hawaiian, curious. And I found this little path around the base of the Mesa. It's just only two people, uh, chest to shoulder to shoulder, could walk along it. And then I saw a sign. This is the Parapatos, where I knew the ancient Greek philosophers walked. This was their pedagogical technique mm. to walk on the path that I was walking on around the base of the mesa that was the site of the Parthenon. So I was blown away. <laughs> and I kept walking. Think of all the thinking that has happened on right, this path. Yeah. It's chicken skin moment, frankly. And I saw this uh, amphitheater that was very large and very grand, made of stone, ancient, deep, 100-foot deep amphitheater. And I was okay, that's grand and large, blues break. But I walked further down this path to a much, much, much more modest amphitheater that was only about a circle, about 30 feet in diameter, and there were only about three levels to sit or stand that were only about six inches uh, above each other. And I saw another sign. This is where Euripides and Asaeacles and all of the early Greek dramatists premiered their plays. To the test audience. So, well, wow. dark as a writer, you can relate. I'm a writer too. Uh, by self-acclamation. Yes. And to be, not a, and a philosopher, not to be where the philosophers walked and mm. where the Greek, Greek playwrights premiered what is the origin of Western literature was absolutely captivating and more than made up for seeing the Parthenon in about 100 pieces as a bunch of Fat, balding German tourists wandered around aimlessly. Mm. That's amazing. What a great experience. Hey, if uh, the listeners of the show uh, would like to send Dark and Ainsley out and there Boyce. to confirm Boyce's story, <laughs> um, you can always go to postorthodoxy.com and put they in a, all a donation. Yeah. <laughs> they were from all over Europe and the world. <laughs> Yeah, it would be good to go there. I I need to go more places. I tend to like project out from where I am, but I want to actually start getting around the world and walking in some. The gravity of I can feel. I'm not like uh, I'm not. I guess maybe I have some hippie, uh, hippie dippy, Fuji Fuji tendencies. but I do have a sense of going to certain places and feeling what I would call, they say that, you know, when you see ants moving around, they say, how are they following that same trail? Even if, because if, even if they're, the thing gets broken and you take them away, they, they tend to follow back the same trail. Like, what is that trail? And like, oh, well, maybe it's like a chemical trail that they've left and they're following. And driving around places in Los Angeles, I, I felt like I could find these, these sort of like human psychic trails where you could feel like it's almost like there's a residual uh, psychometry was a lost art in the beginning of the 19th century, which was about everything is impressing everything all the time and retains the record of those impressions. That was a theory. 
And I think when you're talking about walking through the ocean, the whales do the same. Yeah. They, as they migrate, uh, north and south from Antarctica to the waters around Hawaii, they often follow very very narrow paths in the middle of the ocean or along the coast of South. Yeah. I'm going to go experience more of that stuff. Your sound just went, Oh no, it's back. Maybe. Well, you could travel astrally. I'm sure. Astrally. Yeah, I haven't bought a ticket to that yet. I've been busy with other stuff. I am an incorrigible vagabond, and I like to say I've been to over 30 countries, but eight, seven or eight of those are the former Yugoslavian constituent republics. Is that Russia now? Yugoslavia. Is Yugoslavia still a thing? No, NATO declared war on it because it provided a socialist alternative to capitalism. And Bill Clinton needed to establish his military bona fides. Hmm. Right. So what do we call Yugoslavia now? Uh, Slovenia, ah. Croatia, Serbia, Slovakia, Montenegro, Kosovo. No, Slovakia was part of Czechoslovakia. Oh. So wait, this uh, was one it, country and then Yugoslavia NATO broke it up into shattered. a bunch of countries? Yeah. Yes. The pretext of uh, saving people from genocide, which actually occurred uh it was a horrific war. All right, I have uh, the covers of Boyce's books pulled up on my computer oh, yeah? right now. Boyce says, stonefruit.media slash art. Below are the covers of five word image collage books I've made over the years. I see them as sitting at the juncture of fine art and zines. Scroll down to view and click through to see each book in their entirety. That is so amazing that you cataloged and kept this project available not only for yourself but for other people who might be inspired or given something to think about from a book like this that first cover reminds me of the vonage manuscript it has evocations of that oops the letters are butterfly wings all of them wow they are all butterfly wings that's amazing and so when you were making these what were you trying to do trying to do <laughs> like looking at a painting what is it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i'm the artist <laughs> it's all up to you yeah it's a beautiful, especially in the first one pieces. i was trying to use advertising and the media against itself to help decode how it functioned as the brain police so take that. But then the Velvet Gospels, that, that was in the context of a special prescription show mm. in Chinatown. This is a call back to earlier, the early aughts. And uh, there's one Jet Set Hawaii, which was held at Sun 5, which was Rich Richardson's art uh, gallery before he ran Art at Mark's Garage forever. Mm-hmm. Another foundational piece of the Chinatown Absolutely. Art world, Art at Mark's Garage. And I was in a love triangle between Rich Richardson over Galeray Coey, who was one of our uh, leaders, and I lost. But Galeray eventually turned special prescription into uh, background decoration for her raves, for which her is what? why we all broke up around 04. Speaking of zines, uh, I was having a conversation with a colleague recently, and they brought up the idea of zines needing to come back because of all the all the layers of things that happen 
uh, with your Facebook feed or your news media where, um, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, the phenomena of like a hyperlink in an article and you're like, oh, well, there's a hyperlink. It must go to somewhere. And then you click on it and it takes you to another article which then takes you back to the original article that you came from. And they're just all self-referencing each other with sort of like the illusion that it's been, you know, there's some credential or fat check or something. And I like the idea of the zine because it's, it's unfuckwithable. It's limited. It's free. It's out there. It's a perspective. You take it as a perspective, um, get to say things that you can't be censored for in a zine. A zine can't be censored. You're giving it away. Fuck you guys. They have to see it. Or ignore it, you know? So I like the idea of a zine renaissance as a side note. I think zines may have run their course. Yeah, it's sad. <clears throat> Fight. I think it was a particular... Well, I was very profoundly, deeply into zine. I probably have one of the largest private zine collections in Hawaii, mm. which I also scanned, which took forever. <laughs> but uh, I looked at especially my first few zines as self-consciously Xerox based before 1993, when the internet really uh, came fully of age before 1993, there was no internet. The only means of uh, creating zines was the, the Xerox machine. And that was, you talked about this earlier about the origin of zines, not hippies, but definitely punks. Mm -hmm. And that's how punks arranged their tour schedules by finding the zines in those cities and talk and sending off snail mails to the zine makers and getting their floor or their couch. And so it was instrumental to recognizing itself and organizing itself as a coherent uh, means of making a living and creating DIY do-it-yourself art and to find other fellow travelers and comrades in arms. But since 1993 and the internet, I think uh, zines as self-consciously a photocopy medium have probably been supplanted by something like memes, which are sure, a lot sure. of fun, but they're, they're different. And they're not—they're uh, not as integral to any specific subculture mm. as zines were. And zines didn't—they weren't just punk. That's that was their beauty. They could be entirely personal, literary, artistic. It was a wide open feel of grass, radically grassroots artistic participation. And for me, the most lasting ethos of punk rock is definitely not the uniform you can tell i'm a nonconformist by my slavish adherence to the dress code of nonconformity yep <laughs> and that, it's it, not go it's ahead not just the, the music which i love but it is the ethos of do it yourself mm -hmm. don't wait for credentials don't wait for musical training start a band start a zine <laughs> create your art events that ethos has been uh, strangled by American culture, I think, but it is the most wonderful abiding aspect of, of punk and post-punk. I think the, that branch of media 
is like a branch on a tree where there's the springtime when it's got all kinds of lush stuff on it, and then there's the wintertime where stuff falls off. And I am going to advocate for the evolution of the zine, um, perhaps a, a different fruiting because there is so much more technology available, but then can be hacked and do it yourself in a way where you have a physical zine object, which is sort of like a literary NFT. There's only so many of these made and ways to make yeah. them precious in their unavailability is a way to, because I can make anything and put it on the internet, but who's going to see it? How do the people that might want to see it find it? I think the zine still has a place as a sort of like NFT portal to worlds on the web that people can't find because of Google throttling and all these other things. I think maybe it'd be worth thinking about why do you want to do a zine? What is the point? What is the motivation? Um, what's the modern day motivation for compiling and producing and then distributing a zine out of an airplane to on your bike? No, you you like, you hit the you hit the coffee shops and the bars and the places so where the kind town. of people you want to talk to can find you. Yeah. Right. It's like right. what he was saying with the bands. Like you know, the bands will say, "Here's a zine. I'll talk to those people, and I know where the circuit is." I think if you have a zine that people look right. at and they're like, "Oh my God, there's a circuit," and they can then plug in online to that circuit. Because that's the hard part. It's, it, I think it's kind of retro to have like a physical ad that people have to pick up and find in order to find your yeah. digital landscape. Well, because it, it's like a secret code because it's so hard to find it, like what you might want because of the throttling business. We're specifically talking about um, how, how do we find reliable information. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Our information is so fucked up these days. Um, even the aggregators that I do generally trust say I look into what five or six different independent media people from our list earlier are saying about a particular issue. They're still having to get their information from somewhere. And like we all found out with the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, how easy it is to just uh, be lied to and have no idea. Like I thought Kyle Rittenhouse had killed black people for months. Right. Right. You, you know, like, yeah. And that's me who tries to look into stuff like that and figure out what the real story is. And so, like, where do you uh, – a zine is a way to feel as though at least you know this person probably isn't getting, like, bought and paid for by Pfizer to produce this. I Yeah, I think it's an earmark worth looking at and looking for. Where, where, where do you get your information? Who funded to get the information from point A to your eyeballs? That should be just a part of... And what's their mission statement? What are they trying to do with spreading that information to you? You wanted to start a Girl Scouts, and now I'm thinking about a Boy Scouts, where it's teaching you how to, like, who was... Somebody wanted to start a Girl Scouts. The idea of, like, training girls for the new world or training dudes for the new world. So instead of going out and having to, like, spin a stick and start a fire... Yeah. The idea is how do you... um, uh, how do you take in information from your environment? I mean, that should be a life skill that kids should be learning, especially right now. Right. Um, these ideas of, of teaching new survival skills to kids. And some of that is, the, is figuring out how to negotiate the media ecology because it ultimately makes up their fucking reality. Yes, this starts taking us back to the origin story of post-orthodoxy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Geez. Sorry, sir. Gesundheit. <laughs> Oh boy, he broke it with that cough. Well, what we were doing, which was this like um, deprogramming, you were deprogramming yourself live on the air. That's true. Like, this is what I thought. 
I've heard there's another way, and now I have to figure out how to make a bridge between the two. How do I feel about it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. That's what I remember doing when we started. Uh, and you've been you've been going through some of that stuff yourself recently, Dark, with like um, taking a moment to actually evaluate what you think about Donald Trump. Oh God, that's a whole that's a whole show on its own. Right, but that's that's what we're here to do is like challenge dogmas even when they exist in ourselves, even when it's you um, thinking that it doesn't matter if you think about Donald Trump because you just sort of look down on the whole idea in general, and realizing that that's that's you exhibiting the bad behaviors cognitively and philosophically that you're trying to encourage other people not to do. Right. I think it's about understanding that feeling. So I look at Donald Trump and I, it's like looking at poop. It's like, I know that that's a thing that's in the world, but I don't want to spend my time on it. I, I mean, that's how I look at it. I, I find him distasteful as a, as an entertainer. He's a little <laughs> schlocky for me. It's like watching a bad comic. I don't have feelings. I'm not talking about his, like what he was as president or his morals. I just find his tone unattractive. Um, so it's up. I'm I'm trying to learn to not judge the unattractiveness of the tone in the same way that I don't judge bullshit because I also know bullshit becomes fertilizer that grows stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm having to. I kind of have distaste when I hear about Trump, and I'm trying to find a way to get over my own prejudice so I can recognize, you know, figure out what the shit is and put it in its place so that it can become something useful rather than just saying, "Look at that shit over there." I feel as though it's almost more beyond that for you in in that it's it's actually like a dismissal. It's not it even is. it's not even just that you dislike Trump like your liberal friends. Right. You actually just literally don't give a shit about him. I don't want to acknowledge him actually. And, yeah, and give yeah. him the time of day in your brain. Yeah. And that is a dead end. That's a philosophical dead end and it's not healthy. It's created uh what do you call that? Uh, a definitely a, a void. It's like a pothole in my cognition or something uh steven thompson says my children are already far better at taking in cyber information than i am do yeah. you mean that they are better at taking in cyber information and thinking clearly about it or or negotiating like they're better at not just getting swept up by whatever thing they read mm. potentially boys you're back oh damn it maybe we just got to call the show and he, do- he might just be sitting in meditation in whatever that kind of special meditation was that yeah, I can't remember how to pronounce. The Zazen meditation. Zazen. This might be a I Zazen. Think, I feel like we should call the show because... Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I really, really like this topic, and I don't want to just drag the whole thing out into oh, a God. mishmash of rapidly changing subjects because we can't keep our friend Boyce on screen long enough. No, we're going to make some good chop-ups of the show for post-Orthodoxy microdoses, which you can usually find on the Facebook post-Orthodoxy page. If you're watching on YouTube or on Twitch... Twitch is where I make the microdoses of the show, so you can find smaller segments of the show on particular topics or mm-hmm. particular moments. Um, this is going to be one of those shows that's going to be really fun to do because we covered a lot of different ground, um, and I love uh, Boyce Brown's articulation. Yes, I, and it's maybe like, we just it's have like, to have him back sooner rather than later. Yeah, we're not even getting into... This was a psychedelic discussion Yes. And I think we can, I would love to have a current events discussion with boys when we can current as well. Current psychedelic, oh, current events like Ukraine and Current stuff. events like, yeah, the Ukraine story and all this business. So, boys, if you can hear us, we're going to end today's episode and just call it a, cut our losses. And we're going to have you back on sooner rather than later to well, carry on this conversation. 
um, because I think it's a really good one, and we just barely sort of got into it. We sometimes don't get our show um, finding guests all the time because we were so busy doing production, post-production, and then the rest of our lives, et cetera. Um, so uh, we're looking for regular contributors, Boyce Brown. So maybe you can be one of those regular contributors that well, we can say, hey, dude, we need you on Tuesday. There's a thing that happened. You want to talk about it? Yeah, when we get when we get, um, when we get a producer who's editing the content for us afterwards, then we will be much more able to... Do more to do stuff. more shows more than thank you. I'm yeah. just I'm doing 18 <laughs> things at once. <laughs> well, we need a producer. Yeah, to do more. If you want to help us do that, <laughs> yeah. If you want to help us do that, uh, if, uh, I'd like to thank all the people who tuned into the show today. Who was yes. the dude on on um, AJ? AJ. Oh, yeah. AJ, right, AJ. right, right. Welcome to the show. Thanks everybody who participated, who's watching. If you haven't been to postorthodoxy.com. it's kind of a backwards way to find out more about Ainsley. Also, me because you can go to the better time website but uh it's better ti.me is our website mm -hmm. but specifically the post uh, the sevier's page or the post orthodoxy page postorthodoxy.com it's the easiest way to get there um we have a subscription little button yeah so like if you go you out and you have pay a producer and then we'll be job creators yeah if you go out to the bar tonight and you're like you know what i'm just gonna have one beer and then you have one beer and you're like eh, whatever i'll have another beer and yeah, maybe a third beer Think about one of those beers just once a month, the price of one of those beers. <laughs> how easy it is to spend $5 at the bar. To think about putting this on your credit card for $5 a month, help us uh, get a producer and help us do uh, more, bigger, better shows. I'm enjoying where we're going. Mm -hmm. And uh, a little grease on the wheels would help. So thanks for tuning into the show this week. Thank you, Boyce Brown, for coming in. Sorry about the difficulties. So sorry, friend. We're we'll going to do it again, again sometime. soon and more. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate you. Thank you for visiting our Outpost in the Borderlands. Post-Orthodoxy is a project of Sevier Studios. We host ongoing, interactive conversations centered around cognitive liberty, and you can join in by catching one of our live streams on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch. You can also catch each conversation after the fact as a podcast by searching for Post-Orthodoxy wherever podcasts are found. If you take value from the work we are doing and the community we are building together, you can support the Outpost in the Borderlands for as little as $5 a month on our website, Better Time. That's betterti.me. Visit the Sevier Studios page and subscribe. You can also support The Outpost by following and connecting with us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, and or Substack. Our post-Orthodoxy theme music was composed by Frank Pascal, and a special thanks goes to our voice actors, Amelia, Colin, Zbo, Rosie, Gabo, Vicky, Mokai, and Tony. Thanks for playing. <laughs> What's outside your reality bubble? I think I dribbled a bit, that last one.